Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hi, thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. It's Thanksgiving week, and so it seems appropriate that for today's episode, we'll be hearing about food and the place of food in American culture. For this topic, we turn to Rafi Azafar, professor of English, African and African American Studies, and American Culture Studies here at Washington University in St. Louis. Zafar has published multiple essays about the role of food in American literature, including novels, poetry, and even cookbooks, which she says can often be read as if they were novels. In our conversation, she talked about the ways in which food relates to personal identity, to ethnic identity, and to a person's social status. We'll also hear about the role of food and the act of sharing food in the civil rights movement. The anthropologists always say that the last thing ethnic groups give up is their food. People will move to different neighborhoods, they'll change their names, they'll change their religion, they'll do all kinds of things to sort of assimilate into a larger culture, but the last thing people give up is their food. So you can have a family, Italian-American family named Luongo, they change their name to Long, they stop going to Catholic Church, they go to an Episcopalian church, they move out of, say, lower Manhattan and to the suburbs in Connecticut. But then on Sunday, they have to have gravy. They have to have a, the red sauce, you know, with various interesting bits of stuff in it, like bracciola or sausage and things that are cooked down for hours, and the whole family gathers together. So that might be the the last sort of Italian-American or Italian component of their daily lives. If you think about, if you ask people what their comfort food is, often it's something ethnic, you know, or identifiably. And when I say ethnic, I mean cultural group. So it could be someone from New England who is quote-unquote white and Protestant, but they have their sort of signature foods too that when the chips are down and you're feeling bad about something, you just need you know, a coffee soda, a coffee milk, that's Rhode Island, or someone from Minneapolis would want a hot dish, which is a casserole that people bring from house to house. We might call them casseroles with noodles and tuna fish or ground meat or whatever, but they're called hot dishes in Minnesota. And this is sort of a a standard of commensality, of conviviality, of people sharing, bringing around these hot dishes. This act of sharing food and the idea of who could or could not share meals with whom had particular significance in the civil rights era. With food in the civil rights movement, I look at food as sort of a place around which people gather or didn't gather, the sort of idea of commensality, dining together, and how that became a contested space and a place around which these battles for civil rights over equality were fought. You know, who can sit at the dining room table? Who can be served in a restaurant? So that it has a symbolic structure to it, as opposed to something that's a memnonic for recapturing your ethnicity or your childhood, or somebody who in particular who's gone, but that food, or actually the act of sitting down and eating becomes almost a, a, a battleground. And it was a battleground. One of the the most striking images from the civil rights movement is of Ann Moody, who I write about, sitting at a dining at a lunch a Woolworth counter and having all this food dumped on her, because she was with these other 
civil rights activists just quietly going in and saying, I would like to be served. But in a segregated dining system, like restaurant system in the South, to do something as rebellious as just quietly going in and saying, I want a Coca-Cola and a grilled cheese sandwich, a Woolworth was something that was just seen as paradigm shifting in a negative way for people who wanted to keep you know, the ideology of white superiority. And that's seen as something that would be normal to us, but completely devastating to Southern ideology that someone like myself or Ann Moody would go in and, and not demand it, but just have that expectation or show that she was ready to have her expectation of being served uh, accomplished. I know from my father being a jazz musician, at certain points, if you traveled around the country, you couldn't just go into you know, Howard Johnson's or whatever. You had to know where you could go and be served. You had to know where, where you could stay. And there was even something called the Green Guides, which were kind of like AAA guides, but by and for African Americans. So if you were traveling around by car, you know where it was safe to stop. You know where you could get a place to, you know, to get something to eat, where it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to go around the back of the restaurant and ha have it handed to you out of the service store. And so that's one of the things I start thinking about. How do people, how do people draw lines and boundaries around dining dining room tables? And what do dining room tables or sitting together and eating mean? What do, what do sandwiches? that are shared mean. I look at that in a, in a novel called A Gathering of Old Men um, and in Alice Walker's Meridian about how food is shared. There's a scene where uh, people are coming out of a restaurant, an interracial group, and they get fired upon because they were eating as a mixed group in a restaurant that still had a whites-only sign on the door, even though this was past the age of desegregation, but there still was the sort of the local, local culture that was upholding these old-fashioned ways. So um, it's not necessarily about specific foods, but it's about how those foods are served and shared. That kind of interests me in, in terms of the civil rights movement. The idea of where, how, and with whom certain foods are consumed still carries cultural significance today, perhaps in ways you wouldn't expect. Here's another example from the American South. It was a funny piece I read in the New York Times a while ago that I bring in when I teach my food studies course. And there's a, I don't know if it still exists, it's in Atlanta. And it's a drive-by food place called This Is It. And they sell chitlins. And if you know what a chitlin is, they're pig intestines. And it's the, it's the food of poor people, poor Southerners, often associated with African Americans, so white Southerners eat them also. But this, this place is, has mac and cheese and other sort of standards of the soul food, what we call soul food repertoire. But the journalist was recognizing that there were all these very well-dressed people driving up in Mercedes, whatever, attorneys, physicians, you know, hedge fund managers, whatever they were doing, they were going to get chitlins takeout because their families, their, their spouses and their children refused to have them in the house because it was like this taste of just smelly, it's poor people's food, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So you have this sort of funny picture of these well-off people who've made it still going to, to this little drive-through so they can get the these sort of the tastes of memory, the tastes of growing up black in the South that they remember that their families may, you know, don't want to have any association with and the children certainly don't want to have any association with. But chit chitlins is one of those foods 
probably chicharrones, you know, fried pork rinds, which have kind of gone into popular culture. But when I was growing up, it was really something that I would get in the Puerto Rican store across the street from my house. But there are certain things that are associated with your childhood or with your ethnic group. And those are the things that people really cling to. Uh, they just don't want to give them up. You know, food types you in one way or another. And people, when the way people remember food types them. When people remember food, whether it's in a cookbook or in a memoir, it's a way of recreating who you are. Many thanks to Rafia Zafar for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to her faculty page, as well as more topics to explore, at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. Thanks for listening.